Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 18th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. We had some weird sound issues and uh, recording issues yesterday. So when I said, uh, with me as always is executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. What you might have heard was Abe saying hi before I said hi to him. So we're going to see if we can fix that now by my saying, with me as always is executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. I thought about jumping in beforehand just to ruin it, but then it would have been too confusing. That would have been great. That would have yes. been like a blooper reel. That would have been like the the Star Wars, the Star Trek blooper reel. That would, yeah, that would no, have been funny. It, it sounds like we, we tapped into like a temporal anomaly. Yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Abe and I are both fans of... Uh, of a time travel show uh, on Netflix called Travelers. I usually hate time travel stuff, but uh, this is actually quite a, a brilliant exposition of time travel in a, in a weird way. And uh, and I, I feel like you were, you know, you went back to three seconds before, you know, after your death or something. Precisely, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, watch Travelers. It's really good. I've been telling that... Uh, Associate Edward Northen, did you watch Travelers after we browbeat you into... Saying I have not. No, <laughs> we talked about it and talked about it. Like, was it two years ago or last year? I don't even remember. And you haven't done it. That just shows this is very sad. You could, you could, you, you need to enjoy yourself a little more. Watch Travelers. I'm always looking for new recommendations. I just We're, forgot about that one. Abe and I are heartbroken that they that they they suspended it after three seasons. It's uh, it's 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 very upsetting. At at so. Uh, Senior writer Christine Rosen, did you watch Travelers? I did not, but I just have to say that the radical feminist critique of this time travel excuse making for what was in fact just blatant man interrupting, you're blaming <laughs> technology for the man interruption that I'm kidding. Obviously it was the technical glitch. I have not seen Travelers, but I actually like sci-fi and time travel uh shows, so I'll check it out. Okay. And you know, we didn't get paid for that at all. And <laughs> you know, that's like thousands of dollars of free advertising that netflix uh you know really should if you want to pony up uh we're here uh, email us at podcast at commentary magazine.com let's get to uh an interesting wrinkle uh development uh in a in a washington post story uh that just came out this morning uh which spells out the fact that after Joe Biden gets, and I assume he will get, his uh, nearly $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill through. He will turn around and propose a massive federal spending package beyond that that could be as large as $3 trillion that will be on top not only of the $2 trillion of his coronavirus relief bill, but the four trillion that the government that the that the federal government has already committed to coronavirus relief in the two tranches of the uh, of the uh, Trump administration's uh, uh, the legislation passed during the last year of the Trump administration. So we're already in for close, assuming the Biden Corona bill passes. We're already in for six trillion dollars of relief spending and now the biden people are talking about turning around and spending three trillion on the foundation of the build back better program okay which is infrastructure 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 uh biden's saying you know look our airports are terrible and we need more airports and all of that which is interesting by the way because just to give you two examples and then i'll then i'll stop with this monologuing um airports we our airports are we're 38th in airports right well so just take two cities uh washington uh or uh, it's not washington it's in arlington virginia but uh reagan uh, reagan national airport is about to open a new concourse that replaces the fabled horrible gate 35X, uh, which is a, a particular obsession for the Beltway class because you have to. It's uh, horrible to get to, uh, and they're 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 replacing it with an entire 14 jet concourse. Um, that's at Reagan National and and LaGuardia, uh, I think the second busiest airport in the country, the uh, domestic airport of New York City, um, has is, is 
three quarters of the way through a complete reconstruction project, right? And that's done by the state of New York. The federal government is not implicated hardly at all uh, in in the in, in this act. This is done by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, uh, largely bonded out by the state of New York. Um, every city in the country has massive airport projects. O'Hare in Chicago is is being added to. You know, we had new airports built in Denver twenty uh, some odd years ago. And on and on and on and on, right? So, uh, yes, I grant you that we are 38th in federal spending on infrastructure. The idea that we do not spend on infrastructure in the United States is insane, and particularly on on this on this thing that uh, Biden is obsessed with, which is which is airports. So, I'm going to stop monologuing on this. Uh, obviously, we need infrastructure spending. Everybody agrees there needs to be more infrastructure spending. But what? Uh, Am I crazy or is this crazy? So the, if the uh, the true headline of that piece should have been the tax man cometh because there is no I, I, I there was very little in there except a little blurb about how, oh, yeah, obviously we'll have to raise taxes to pay for all this. But how this will be funded was really never embraced. I will say, though, that the the message that the administration is already pushing with this, they keep they don't just say it's job creating. They say good union jobs. Uh, Jen Psaki said this when asked about it by the Post. Um, good union jobs are going to be created by this. And actually, just yesterday, uh, the Biden administration met with a lot of the major labor unions to discuss some of these plans. So one one thing you might uh, we should see this as being is Biden trying to thread the needle between the loss of good jobs that his green environmental uh policies will undoubtedly bring, um, particularly in in, uh, natural gas and fracking and whatnot, and trying to kind of sell this idea that there'll be future good union jobs on the horizon if you pass a, you know, multi-trillion dollar spending bill for which everyone's taxes will, of course, have to dramatically increase to pay for it. So there's a weird balancing act that they're going to try to portray with this. And I, I'll, I'll be curious to see if, if it flies with people like, I don't know, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, for example, the kind of people who even as Democrats have their eye on, on um, the economy and on fiscal responsibility right now. Noah, what do you... Where are you going with this? You you have been talking for months about how there's just no way, there is no money, there's going to be no money. You know, they can't talk about all this, and here they are talking about it. Well, they're just so far talking about it. Uh, I don't know how much I have to add to what Christine said. Um, in part because this is sort of the mentality of never let a crisis go to waste. Um, infrastructure is really only tangentially related to the current crisis, which is on everybody's minds, and it's the one everybody wants addressed. And if they go too far afield of what um, looks to be like mitigation efforts for the continuation of this crisis for the foreseeable future, much like Obamacare was sort of only tangentially related to the financial crisis and sort of creating a soft landing space for you so you could languish in perpetuity in a a very prolonged and pronounced recession, the potential for a backlash there seems pretty self-evident. Democrats aren't going to get what they want. They're going to be tantalized with what they want. They're not going to get everything they want. And that's going to be depressing. And Republicans aren't going to get anything that they want and are going to be very energized by it. And we know how that dynamic unfolds. Um, Abe, here's what I was looking at. So we're talking about a a level of federal spending, uh, the likes of which uh, we have never seen before. Uh, and obviously there was a kind of, there was a kind of bipartisan consensus on the need to sort of just open the, you know, open the spigots and run whatever could be run to, uh, make sure that the, that the, the emergency caused by the virus uh, did not tank the U S and the world economies. Um, and so, you know, that, that was Republicans and Democrats, Trump, Trumpkins and non-Trumpkins, everybody, right? Uh, you know, the PP, the PPA money, the loans, um, unemployment insurance, everything that went into that was pretty much, you know, people didn't question. Um, now we turn around and we have Christine's point about the good union jobs, right? I'm now looking here at uh, at union membership numbers in the United States, okay? How, what percentage of the private sector employment in the United States uh, 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 
is uh, unionized. Do you know the number? I'm not going to play a guessing game. It's 6.3%. Uh, and non-union people who are represented by union contracts in the private sector go up to about 7.8%. However, public sector workers in the United States uh, are 35% unionized. All in all, the number of American workers who are members of unions is a little less than 11%. So I bring this up only to say that it seems to me that it's very weird that the administration is directing all of its emotional energy and macroeconomic focus to a sliver of the uh, employed population of the United States. Am I am I nuts? Again, I, I feel like, you know, 30 years ago, the number was much larger. It was a tw- twice or, or three times the number. So help me out here. Huh. Well, I don't, I mean, it is, obviously it's weird. I What, what struck me when you were talking about how, you know, uh, people accepted the, um, the, 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 large scale of the initial relief due to the pandemic. Um, Something we heard immediately and repeatedly with the moment the pandemic hit was that uh, the coronavirus has exposed all the weaknesses of the U S right. This is, this, this is sort of, you know, pull the curtain back on all the things we need to fix. Um, And uh, so this is, seems like a, a, a piggybacking on the pandemic in that sense, on that, on that idea that because of uh, uh, the pandemic has, has, has exposed the myth of our great uh, uh, successes that we need to sort of rebuild uh, the country along those lines. But uh, regarding the, the, the union, uh, the union question, I mean, look, part of what this is about, no doubt is that, that, um, Trump, because of Trump, Republicans made great inroads with the working class, right? And uh, there's there's a need to to among Democrats to rest that back. That's not so weird. I don't think that's it, though. The story of the last decade, well before Donald Trump was even contemplating a presidential run, is the atrophying of labor unions. People were fleeing labor unions. It was complemented with Supreme Court cases like Janus, which prevented you from, as a, as a labor union, taking dues away from individuals who weren't members of your union but worked in a profession that was unionized. There has been a steadily decline, steady decline of union membership, which does not correspond with polling. We've been talking about this forever. This is now my new hobby horse. Polling has very consistently suggested that Americans approve of labor unions. From 1936 to 2020, Gallup has been polling this question, and it's been roughly in between 72% and 60%, with a dip in 2008 right after the collapse, down to 48%. Then back up to the 60s and the mid-60s. People like labor unions in the abstract, or at least they think they have to say that. But they don't necessarily want to belong to them. The notion that you look around at conditions that prevail today and think that labor unions are in good odor is betrayed by your own eyes. So yes, they're saying every every single job in America has to be a good labor, a good union job, because that's where the power base is, and they need to compel that condition because you, of your own accord, wouldn't be joining a labor union. Well, and there are two two other little data points to to make with regard to assessing what they might have in mind with this infrastructure bill. One is that um, some Biden administration supporters uh, and former advisors, including during the campaign and the transition, have formed a 501c4 lobbying group that's entire focus is to fundraise and lobby for whatever this big, huge infrastructure build back better stuff is going to be. The other point is that there was a really interesting uh, article, very brief little article in the Washington Post uh, this week also that talked about how Democrats are bringing back earmarks. Earmarks, as you remember, are, are what are colloquially known as pork. These weird little projects that individual members get and get shoved into these larger bills in order to satisfy voters back home. They've been in kind of um, uh, bad odor, as it were, for a long time because they are seen as just, you know, massive federal spending on pet projects that really don't benefit very many Americans and cost a lot of money. But the the, the interesting thing about the post story was saying was it, it 
the rehabilitation effort for earmarks now that Democrats are in control of Congress. They're called a an interesting strategy, a useful thing for, for members who are vulnerable to losing their seats in re-election. So you see this kind of, all of these things are all coming into play in terms of how we're going to be even able to discuss this um, bill and its likely uh, impact, both financially and as and as a matter of, you know, bringing back pork, which I thought had gone in the 80s and 90s. But Well, Poor, the ear the earmark <clears throat> wasn't ended until 2011. Right. The earmark was eliminated in 2011 uh, when the House uh, went Republican, and John Boehner, who was then the Speaker of the House, was was himself an opponent of uh, what was called member designated right. uh, something or other. I can't. And many moderate Democrats also opposed the earmark. I mean, right. Well, you know, and there were. <clears throat> It was one of the great populist Republican talking points, right? The bridge to nowhere, the famous bridge to nowhere in Alaska, where, you know, t- t- <clears throat> maybe hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on on Don Young's district <clears throat> on a bridge that literally went, uh, ended, and then there was nothing on the other side of the bridge. So <clears throat> that and m- many other, uh, you know, the potato museum or the the, the cowboy poetry uh <laughs> spending for uh, Harry Reid or the various other things, right? So that, so um, there is a lot, a more complicated argument to be made in favor of I think of it's earmarks. very simple. It's a very simple argument. The argument is that you give these projects that um, members can go back to their constituents and say, I delivered this for you. And that is therefore a tangible metric by which voters can evaluate the candidates and their incumbents. Because right now, all they have to evaluate their incumbents is how crazy they are on television. Right. That's, That's exactly right. But it's, it, in other words, it, it, it provides a, a stimulant and an accelerant to deal making, which is Noah's sort of alluding to. There is no percentage. There is no value to deal making anymore because what you are supposed to do in Congress is largely now prevent the other side from getting its way. That is, that is it, it, Congress is largely defensive, particularly the Republican Congress, but, you know, the the Democratic Congress also against Republicans. So um, you can cut through some of the partisan block here by by the process of of demonic temptation, you know? No, really, just come vote for our infrastructure bill. You can get that, you can get that um, firehouse in your district, you know, that kind of thing. And, and it, it worked for, for, you know, 200 years and, and, and it's elimination uh, as is often the case had unintended, had unintended consequences. But I want to talk about one other large political thing in relation to, to what Biden has done here. Okay. This is uh, like epical spending. Right, we're talking about six. You put these bills together. If they were to happen, I don't think the three trillion bill, but that's five trillion dollars, right? And a twenty-two trillion dollar economy in one year. Um, Obama was lost the House and would have lost the Senate if it hadn't been for lunatic Republican nominees uh, in twenty ten because he spent two and a half trillion dollars in eighteen months. Right, so we're now uh, ten years later. This is pr- pretty much the same. Obama was elected in uh, uh, 2008, he got 369 or something electoral votes, right? Joe Biden got 306, same as, as, as Donald Trump. He won by 10 million votes and I think eight percentage points. Biden won by four and a half percentage points. Ronald Reagan getting the most important piece of domestic legislation of this, you know, in some ways, economic legislation in the second half of the 20th century, the the Reagan tax cuts in 1981, got 489 electoral votes in 1980 and won by 10 percentage points over Jimmy Carter. So Biden comes in, he wants to spend $5 trillion with a... Oh, and Reagan also won 12 Senate seats for the GOP, or the GOP won 12 Senate seats in 1980. Biden wants to come in, he wants... Fight to spend $5 trillion with a 4% electoral majority, 306 electoral votes, a 50-50 Senate in which there is not a Democratic majority, and five a five-seat margin in the House of Representatives. 
So not only is it unlikely that he can work his will, unless things happen like the elimination of the filibuster, because there's no way that a bill like this passes without the filibuster being eliminated. It may not pass with it because Manchin and Cinema, the most right-wing Democrats in the in the in the Senate, probably can't agree to it. Although Manchin loves a good infrastructure bill, certainly. Um, but it can't happen because it's not a budget bill. It's you know you can't. It implicates the budget, but it's not a budget bill. You're not going to be able to make the case that you can do it through reconciliation, something of the spending on infrastructure, and so you're going to have to blow up the filibuster, which they say they're not going to do. So any way you slice it, he's pitching an enormous amount of spending without the political backing that justifies him going all in like a deranged lunatic. And he is handing the Republicans the means to slaughter his party next year. This seems to me to be really dumb. Like, it looks like it's okay, and it's a long way till November 2022. But if Democrats come out of a out of a relatively weak election victory, proposing the complete elimination of fossil fuels, and, you know, now we've got Bill Gates, I know he's not a, but, you know, talking about how no one should ever eat beef again, and we're going to spend $5 trillion, and everybody is woke, and you're going to go into re-education sessions at your high school, and whatever it is, what are they going to run on? I mean, the only thing they're going to have to run on positively is he's A, not Trump, so people it's nicer, and B, maybe there'll be an economic recovery after the, there'll be a good economic recovery after the, the virus ends, whatever that means, the virus ending. Um, I, I don't understand the, the, the political logic that says to Biden and the people around Biden that it is good to talk about spending $5 trillion in six months. But for uh, Republicans to hammer the Democrats on this, um, wouldn't that, in a sense, necessitate a kind of break from Trumpism in the way, in a way, because um, Trump didn't care about spending and Trump, and, and this is actually reminiscent of, the, the initial Bannon plan back in 2016, right? We're going to spend like crazy on infrastructure, and this is going to bring both sides together. Um, and, um, you know, there is a sense in which, even among the Repu- Republicans now, uh, they that voters, what voters want is to get things, and that that is the, that is the, the goal, to give them things. But the Bannon plan wasn't affected. Right. I mean, you know, that that's the big what if of the of the of the Trump administration was <clears throat> he was elected as a uh I'm not a conventional Republican who was only interested in tax cuts, and then he governed as a conventional Republican who was only interested in tax cuts. Like that was a that was an interesting t- twist um on uh you know uh, on it. Um uh, but also even though he was, you know, spent like a sailor and was, you know, and all of that, um he uh he didn't do this, right? I mean, it's not like he laid off. He he laid on four three bill three trillion on top of two point one trillion. That's just a new thing. That's like that's like a new wrinkle in dumbass politics, where you're so interested in catering inside your bubble that you have no idea how this looks to anybody. We already have conventional Democratic economists like Larry Summers saying that the that the coronavirus bill is too big and is spending too much and is going to overheat the economy and and bring back massive inflation. But we don't that. think this is going to happen. I mean, Which, you just said for all the reasons, all the, this maybe even a third of the infrastructure spending that they're asking for. There's probably some consensus around some infrastructure spending, nowhere near what they're asking for. And this, all these promises are beginning to mount. The Biden administration is now sort of governing by um, uh, postponement. The court packing plan is being examined. The elimination of $50,000 worth of student debt is in a committee and they're pouring over it. We're promising to really seek $3 trillion worth of infrastructure spending, but we may get like $800 billion. All these progressives who want to see this transformational stuff happen from this from the Biden administration, which they aren't saying outright that they're not going to do, they're just chin stroking, carefully examining it, is going to have the effect of dispiriting progressives eventually because it's not going to materialize. 
Well, that's the interesting question, right? I mean, uh, so we we've been talking about how on the on the virus, uh, he has been uh, under promising with the with the goal of over delivering, uh, and you're essentially saying that he's now over promising on domestic spending and un, and and is going to under deliver. Well, and it it but but this also uh, creates an opportunity for Republicans because they're as long as they're talking about it and talking about it badly and trying to like satisfy the progressives without without actually achieving what the progressives want, they open themselves up to legitimate criticism. And on the COVID stuff, we talked about this the other day, but just just yesterday, you know, the COVID his COVID czar went on, I think CNN or MSNBC, and was asked outright like. We look at California, we look at Florida, two very different strategies about lockdown, both doing really well. How do you explain that? And he could not explain it because politically he can't justify what a, what a Republican governor in Florida did versus what a Democratic governor in California did. And, and this is one of those examples of where if you're going to under promise rather than have a bold strategy that you all stick to, you know, you end up looking weak from both sides. This is also true about about overpromising and under under delivering. If you go into this debate with this, you know, crazy uh, wish list, three trillion dollar wish list, you are just as likely to have the entire thing blow up on the launch pad as you are to have it negotiated radically down into something that there's consensus on. Because it's there are points at which you have to say, I can't give this up or I'm not going to give that up or something like that. And then the logic becomes unassailable. And then you have stakeholders who get upset that you're dropping their desideratum and they lobby or and all this. And the whole thing becomes a total mess. And rather than getting what you wanted or some version of being able to claim victory that you did something on this, you get nothing. I mean, that's that that's a that's a, a traditional story. In the in the uh, in, in governmental overreach, that things fail entirely when they're not structured with the with the goal or aim of getting them passed in the first place, and we have the same thing going on in immigration, where the the initial ask on immigration is deranged, right? I mean, it is it is you know sort of like uh, no no prosecution of uh, no no deportation no prosecution of illegal activity no deportation for people who are arrested and you know and 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 convicted of committing crimes and um and a path to citizenship which i'm in favor of but for everybody including you know not just people who get in line no fine no nothing it's just you know like uh blanket amnesty for you know 12 million people that that is really not going to happen. But John, this is all just art of the deal, right? I mean, you're just asking high and you're going to settle for something in the middle where this is just negotiating tactics 101, right? I mean, we heard that for four years and yet no one has really expa- examined the fact that Donald Trump's negotiating tactics were horrible, routinely disastrous, never got him what he wanted. Right. And yet they're emulating it. Well, I mean, you know, the... There, but I mean, they're there, and why are they emulating it? They're emulating it because I believe, I think that um, the Biden people had a vision for how to how to win the presidency uh, that was just you know inspired. I really do, and that and that now he's got to govern, and the cabinet is empty. the the cupboard The cupboard is bare, and he is now lifting off the shelf. Uh, you know, all sort of ready to wear plans. Like, what's the infrastructure plan? Well, it's as big as this, so we'll go with that. What's the, what, you know, from liberal interest groups and leftist stakeholders and all of that, and he's got nowhere else to go but there because he didn't develop an agenda. He didn't develop working papers and, you know, uh, legislation beforehand or, you know, produce the produce a book that laid out how he was going to do this precisely because that was that would have harmed his electoral chances. Um, I just think it's just interesting that that they're acting like this is the Obama that he's coming like Obama and he hasn't. Obama won a much more commanding victory uh, and had 60 senators in 2009, and he's got 50. I mean, it's just not the same. And 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 if the political reality is that you got 50 senators, then maybe you then maybe you go like hell into 
reviving earmarks and doing stuff like that. So you can seduce <clears throat> one Republican into joining your side by giving him a lot of money or doing what, you know, like rather by the than, way, yeah. Obama, even with that, still was punished for overreaching. Right. Uh, but he did it right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he overreached because he didn't say, I'm going to come in and fundamentally restructure the relationship of the individual and the government and, and the individual and society by forcing everybody in the United States to purchase a private good, right? Which is, uh, you know, or 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 have serious discussions about like, making sure that people in his coalition could not have to pay their mortgages while everybody else was paying their mortgages, however it's like, however we slice it. Uh, guys, I want to talk to you about uh, an important new film you really want to take a look at. Because uh, on October 2nd, 2018, the Washington Post journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi entered the Sa- Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, and was never seen alive again. At a time when America is focused on its own domestic problems, there's one documentary that reminds us there are unbelievable and shocking events unfolding around the globe. The new documentary, The Dissident, boldly looks into the events and intrigues surrounding the murder that shocked the world. Senator Lindsey Graham says, there's not a smoking gun, there's a smoking saw. The movie not only unearths new proof, it ultimately exposes Khashoggi's killers. Senator Rand Paul says the evidence is overwhelming that the crown prince was involved. Playing out at the highest levels of power and wealth, the Associated Press calls the dissident a real-life thriller. Are you ready for the truth? From the Academy Award-winning of direct, director of Icarus, the dissident, rated PG-13, now available at home on demand. Please visit thedissident.com for more information. Moving on, uh, there dropped yesterday a podcast uh that was uh very revelatory uh hosted by Peter Beinart the uh uh one-time editor of the New Republic uh now a journalism professor at CUNY and a one month uh, one one column a month columnist for the New York Times uh and a, a man who went from being a uh, Zionist to a post-Zionist to pretty close to being an anti-Zionist in his uh, political evolution, and he has a podcast called Occupied Thoughts, um, and he had on his podcast Ben Rhodes, the former uh, Deputy National Security Advisor uh, in the Obama administration, uh, well-known for being Obama's... Um, what would you call it? Sort of his uh, channeler, his uh, the the person who understood him best in and on his foreign policy views, the person who accompanied Obama after uh, his term in office around the world to see what role Obama might play uh, in the world after his presidency, um, and of course, most famously in the world of opinion. Uh, the guy who was exposed uh, in a piece by David Samuels in 2015 in the New York Times Magazine, arrogantly talking about how in the effort to promote the Iran nuclear deal, he activated a um, a bunch of know-nothing 27-year-old uh, internet writers and columnists and got them to do his bidding and and produce whatever propaganda he needed them to produce in what he himself dubbed the echo chamber uh, as a in, as part of the uh, promote of the strategy to get the Iran deal through the Senate. Um, so that's Ben Rhodes, uh, and he and Beinart have this conversation about what it was like to deal with the Israel the the pro Israel community during the Obama administration, and it is. A startling conversation. Does anybody want to uh, take yeah, it up from here? I, I I listened to it in its entirety, um, and it is remarkable. It's it, you can you can see wh- why David Samuels got as much as he got from Ben Rhodes because Ben Rhodes is just a blabbermouth who has uh, no conscious awareness of um, how he goes on and on and on 
about things that are um, just disgusting and, and crazy. Um, the Beinart's podcast, of course, should be called uh, Preoccupied Thoughts because uh, Beinart's reason for existence now is, is to bash and, and delegitimize Israel. Um, the entire, it was about, 40, by the way, that's explicit. That is now explicit. Yes. Like he says in the podcast that he's disappointed in the Biden administration for saying it opposes the boycott divestments and sanctions strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, he's disappointed anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, there, there's a, there's a great many things, um, that were, uh, truly disgusting in this, in this conversation, beginning with this idea that I think Ben Rhodes introduces, that there is, his words, a vast pro-Likud press in the U.S. Um, that, you know, uh, takes uh, Israel's side in, in whatever the, the issue is. This is the vast uh, pro-Likud press, presumably, that um, saw the New York Times run uh, not one, but at least two uh, anti-Semitic cartoons uh, the, uh, last year uh, in, in reference to uh, Netanyahu. Um one of the other things that I thought was just remarkable was Bynard and Rhodes had this conversation about what is it like when you're meeting with pro-Israel groups uh, to talk about when you were, when you were in the White House to talk about U.S. policy on Israel, and basically they 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 both explicitly came to the the conclusion that in these discussions too many Jews have their say. There, there are too many Jews involved in these discussions and that maybe they should sit back um, and let others contribute to the talk who, who don't feel as comfortable um, speaking about these things because of because of um, all the Jews speaking up. And I, I have aside from that being um, revolting in and of itself, it is the exact inverse of the type of argument these same people would propose in any other circumstance, right, where where the the, the person and the, the personalities who are it's supposed to be involved in any policy have to have to be representative of uh, whatever group is uh, either involved or remotely involved or somehow indirectly impacted, right? But the Jew, the Jews are are too involved um, <laughs> in, in in discussions about uh, Israel. Oh. And not just not just the people who come into the administration to lobby. That the, here we get into the really extraordinary, revolting part of the conversation, which is Rhodes saying, and I'm quoting because I typed as I was listening. I mean, I, I may have gotten a couple of things wrong. Looking around the room, meaning uh, the room of experts in the Obama administration talking about the Middle East, a situation room, and every single one in the room was Jewish. Again, I don't want to sound conspiratorial. I don't want to advance a trope. I think it's great that so many Jews are involved in foreign policy. But let's not pretend that there's not some, you know, dot, 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 <laughs> didn't complete the thought. Because, because of this, you see, we Americans or Obama, whatever, understand the Israeli fears and grievances intuitively. We have some understanding with it in our unconscious but, you know, so in a way, intellectually, I can understand the Palestinian experience, but I, I, I don't, he says of himself, and uh, refers to the usual suspects in the organized American Jewish community. Mm -hmm. Well, he also, uh, doesn't he also hint that they've all been secretly briefed by the Israeli government before even coming in and, and talking about the, I mean, the, it, it is outright yes. conspiratorial. I mean, he has one, one thing well, he said he, that I wrote yeah. down. He 17 said, times he says, it's not a conspiracy. Right. I'm exactly. not talking about a conspiracy. And then he talks about a conspiracy. Well, he has Go this ahead, phrase, sorry. he has this one phrase where he says, you know, Jews, have, he goes, maybe the view is that Jews have been screwed throughout history by a corrupt, cruel world. And so, you know what, we just have to be corrupt and cruel ourselves. That's the only way to survive in this world like the the kinds of things that he's he's uh he's imposing on all jews is is if spoken by anyone else would be very clearly seen to be conspiracy theorizing but he gives himself a pass by saying he's of jewish heritage so it's fine like it, it's bizarre it's really bizarre it, there's so it's, so it's solipsistic in a way that is reflective of how they approach the iran deal so the only reason why there's profound public support in this country for Israeli and the Israeli position is some sort of mind control meted out by a, a biased press. It couldn't possibly be that people have arrived at these conclusions of their own, on their own based on their own 
assumptions about the region and their own knowledge and their own research. Similarly, they approached the Iran deal like this, which is one of the reasons why Ben Rhodes's name is mud in every Sunni state in the region. Um, because the only the only reason why things were the way they were is because of the West, because of Sykes Peacoat, because of our interventions and our uh, our uh, uh, maneuvers in the region. And the only you know, we can we can we made this condition so we can engineer ourselves out of it and impose on these cultures and these and uh, create new conditions on the ground and give Iran a ha- you know a new hand that will create this stable balance in the region. And it's, it's sort of this engineering, this real. A, a, a real commitment to your own uh, ability to to re-engineer the world in the way that you want it made and think that everybody else who disapproves of you is just merely an obstacle that is possessed of a false consciousness. Um, it's really, uh, you know, again, solipsistic, but also very conceited, what, um, what, which is, yeah. I guess, the basis of every conspiracy theory. Yeah. Uh, w- one of the other uh, disgusting things that they, that they, they were both sort of, thrilled to have um, like arrived at this. They were like d- delighted with this point was that um, I guess Barnard first proposed it and Ben Rhodes certainly agreed that um, pro-Israel Americans, you see uh, the Jews, the, all, all these Jews that, that, that Ben Rhodes had to meet with, um, they suspected Obama hated Israel because he was black. That's why not because uh, he palled around with people like uh, Rashid Khalidi, the, the virulently anti-Israel activist. Um, what a spokesman for the Palestine Liberation Organization in Lebanon in 1982. Yes, Rashid Khalidi. He was not just an academic who supported, you know, who was who was critical of Israel. He was an official of the PLO, and he was Obama's closest friend at the University of Chicago. Right. Um, and not because of any of the policies that, uh, that that the Obama administration enacted, but because because Obama was black. And you see that what 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 the, they were particularly delighted to then expand upon was this um, supposed sentiment on the part of pro pro Israel Jews exposes the fact that they understand that the Palestinians' suffering is akin to the historical black suffering in the U.S. You see, this is a tacit admission on the part of uh, pro-Israel Americans. Right. Let me let me use the quote because I, I typed it. So this is Rhodes. Obama is a black man who lived in an oppressed community. That would be Hawaii, uh, Columbia University, uh, a marginalized community, you know, uh, very te- lived a terribly marginalized life living in a marginalized community, uh, Barack Obama, but nonetheless lived in an oppressed, marginalized community in the U.S. And therefore the expectation among these evil Jews, that's my interpolation, was that he would sympathize with the Palestinians because they're oppressed. You see, so the Jews are like, well, of course Obama's going to sympathize with the with the Palestinians He's black, and it's not that he's black, and therefore he would sympathize with the Palestinians because he's stupid or they're racist. It's that they knew that he could look at the Palestinians and see their suffering, and that wasn't good, so he needed to be quashed. That is that is Rhodes's interpretation of Jewish skepticism about Obama's feelings about Israel and the Palestinians. Now, I mean, uh, uh, so uh, Rosen tells the story about going uh, to Israel and meeting with Palestinians <clears throat> in Ramallah and, uh, and that there's a kid and he's sitting there and he's glowering the whole time and angry. And then Obama at some point says, why are you so angry? And he says, <clears throat> the kid says, we are treated the same way in this country that black people are treated in your country and financed by your government, Mr. President. And, you know, the room fell silent because a deep truth was being told there. Now, let's let's just let's just parse this for a minute. This guy, an American uh, diplomat, you know, America, senior American official is taking the president to uh, Ramallah to meet with, you know, a carefully chosen collection of Palestinian activists chosen 
you know, with the utmost of care to make sure that they make exactly the argument that is supposed to be made and that will be, you know, as devastating as possible, saying we're treated like blacks were treated in your country, right? Okay, at the moment that Obama was there on the West Bank, the West Bank had been an autonomous, self-governing region for 14 years with its own president, its own budget, its own uh, political structure, and the other part of the Palestinian polity, Gaza, had been completely separated from Israel in every possible way. All the Jews had left Gaza. Gaza was left on its own, decoupled, no connection to Israel whatsoever. The idea that the oppression of the Palestinians uh, was entirely due to being treated like blacks during Jim Crow, when a lot of the oppression of the Palestinians that was going on for this kid sitting in the room in Ramallah was the result of the behavior of his of the of the Palestinian government that had been set up as a result of the uh, Oslo Accords is just astonishing. And Ben Rhodes takes this entirely at face value. And why does he take it entirely at face value? Because he wants to, right? He wants to get it face value because he hates Israel. He said, Netanyahu treated us like garbage. Every day it was hell. <laughs> he made our lives hell, right? Um, that, that's, by the way, that, that was, a, I felt, one of the, an important revelation in this. Ben Rhodes went on at length when they were discussing their disappointment in the Biden administration. Ben Rhodes was saying how, well, he knows, you know, he has so many contacts in the Biden administration, so many friends and so many holdovers from the Obama, not holdovers, but people who are also in the Obama administration. Um and they hate they all hate Netanyahu and they all hate Netanyahu and they won't forgive Netanyahu. So whatever the Biden administration may be doing, it is populated by people who understand how awful and evil Netanyahu is. Right. Why does this matter? Why is it? Why, why are we talking about this to such a such a such a great length? Well, I mean, I think it's a very striking example of something, which is uh, Rhodes uh, is uh, Rhodes's views on this matter are reflective, terrifyingly reflective, of uh, what I would consider the consensus opinion uh, among uh, d- uh, Democratic stakeholders. Uh, this is now my favorite word because the Democrats use it all the time. Uh, in foreign policy and in, uh, particularly in relation uh, to the Middle East and Israel, which is uh, Israel is the oppressor. We all know it's the oppressor. We are we are prevented from doing anything about the oppression that it engages in because of a cabal of Jews. He says 10 or 20 of them. You keep meeting the same 10 or 20 of them. Look, they're well-organized. This is, we would hope all communities in America would be this well-organized and representing themselves. They're well-organized and they put a lot of pressure on and the fight is only in the Democratic Party anyway because the evangelical Christians have controlled, mind-controlled the Republican Party into being, you know, a, a unified force uh you know, in support of the most right-wing policies in Israel and all of this. And yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, John, your favorite New York Times columnist, Michelle Goldberg, actually tweeted when the when when people were discussing this uh, on social media. She said, Ben Rhodes is Jewish and he's just articulating beliefs that are very common among left of center Jews. So to anyone who would doubt that this is considered mainstream opinion, she endorses that view right there. Here. Left of center Jews here. There's such a there's a jingoism uh, that none of them really cop to, but all of them are so centered in what Western opinion should is about how this region should evolve. Well, yeah, but by the way, I, I've been I was on a panel with Michelle Goldberg talking about Israel, and she described herself as an anti-Zionist. So if her if she now wants to say that it is the conventional opinion among left wing Jews that they are anti-Zionist, then fine. We, let us begin at that point and begin and have this conversation, not only generally, but within the Jewish community to say that conventional left-wing Jewish opinion is now anti-Zionist, does not believe in the necessity of a Jewish state at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise, when Jews in France and in Europe are possibly very much in need of a safe haven because of terrorist acts against them, and and where uh, all of this is happening, good. I, I believe that to be the case. I would love that to be the basis of the conversation about Israel, the United States, and Jewry. 
which is that left-wing Jewry in the United States is turning against the good, safe haven that Jews need that we know about because of horrible history that is, is within living memory and is happening right now. In regard to Noah's point about the, the sort of bubble aspect of this, um, here's the good news. This 45-minute conversation about Israel and American policy toward it, and not once did they touch, did they even mention in passing the Abraham Accords. The single most important development regarding Israel and its standing in the Middle East and U.S. policy. And they couldn't touch it. They couldn't go near it because the reality of it undermines their point entirely. Uh, the, 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 the cause for, for which those two are um, prattling on about is no longer uh, of any meaning to the, the, the most important players in the region, the most important Arab players in the region. It, is, it has become a dead end in the Middle East. Right. And, the, and, and so that is one. So, so, so this continues to be an echo chamber uh, of their own. I mean, I think the central point here, uh, maybe, is uh, that the the view uh, promulgated by Peter Beinart and and Ben Rhodes um, is that uh, Israel is too much of a focus in American foreign policy. We spend too much time talking about it. So you know what we're going to do? Let's just sit here and obsess over the prime minister of a country that has 8 million <laughs> citizens <clears throat> that... Um, the obsessional quality, uh, it's understandable that Israel obsesses over the United States. Uh, Barack Obama was obsessed with Israel emotionally, personally, politically, and his hatred of Netanyahu was a governing sentiment throughout his presidency. Bibi is a tough character. People in Israel don't like him either. He's impossible to deal with. <clears throat> He's, you know, all of that. That's all true. There's no question that that is all true. And that, you know, you, you wouldn't want to be on the other side of a table with him um, because he'll, you know, he'll rip your heart out or rip, rip your throat out, depending on what, what he'll use, whatever weapon is to hand to get what he wants. Um, this became a consuming obsession of Obama's, the most powerful person in the world, the head of the largest country, you know, the, the largest military, the most powerful, the richest country in the world. And he's sitting there saying, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? And these guys are obsessed with Israel in a way that I'm not obsessed with Israel. And I got a, I got a sister and uh, three nieces and nephews and uh, two great nephew nieces and nephews living, uh, living there. So um, their hatred is very palpable here. And it's all gussied up in a kind of arch ironic, you know, hipster, New York, Washington, uh, you know, metrosexual way. Uh, but it's all there, and it's these Jew, and then this kind of loathsome uh, uh, adaptation of cliche. Like, let me give you a funny example. Like, I would have to go every two weeks to talk to Jewish Democrats on the Hill about what's going on. And, you know, it was very Jewish because we always ate bagels. Oh, really? You always ate bagels? Well, were you also, you know, like... Uh, you know, were you having locks and and singing Fiddler on the Roof and then, you know, dancing the horror and, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, whatever else? Like, what the hell is wrong with you? Who talks like this? You know, it was all very black. It's like we go in and have watermelon. What the hell is going on? So, and the point here is that Rhodes, uh, you know, I think this interview pretty much will put the kibosh on him getting, uh, you know, getting any senior job in the Biden administration is my guess, because, you know, like it's, you know, any hearing that anybody would ever want to have with him is now, you know, golden. Um, uh, but, uh, but to the extent that what he thinks, he's right, that the Biden people feel more the way he feels uh, than the way, you know, I feel or the way that, you know, uh, a liberal supporter of Israel who doesn't like Netanyahu but believes that, you know, uh, Israel uh, spent has spent 20 years in the aftermath of offering the Palestinians a state at Camp David only to have lived through a horrible terror war 
and uh, then tried to find a new way of of, of going into its future that um, that's not that that's good and not bad. Um, so uh, that's where I would <clears throat> go with that. And I got to stop for a second and talk to you about ExpressVPN. Social media and big tech are trying to curb our rights and freedoms by attempting to deplatform speech they don't agree with. Now you could just deactivate all your social media accounts. But why give the left just what they want in the first place? Instead of letting them try to control your speech, why not revoke big tech sites' right to your data? That's why I choose to protect my online data by using ExpressVPN. When you use it, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address, which makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. And ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network. And let me tell you, the ExpressVPN app couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone and computer, and you're protected, and you can use it on all your devices. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. Um, <clears throat> Rush Limbaugh died yesterday, uh, at the age of 70. Uh, Noah, you went on Twitter to say that, uh, your, you, you, you attribute much of your professional life to the influence of Rush Limbaugh. Among them. Yeah. Also, I just felt like somebody needed to say something nice on Twitter about the guy because, um, the preponderance of reactions were from, uh, really obnoxious, leftists dancing on his grave. Um, growing up, I wasn't very, I wasn't all that political when I was young. I wanted to be a performing artist. I went to college on a performing arts scholarship, but um, my parents were more conservatively inclined and, you know, Rush was on in the background in the, uh, during, you know, we car trips and what have you. And I was a fan of, of news talk radio for a long time, even when I was still a performing artist. And after 9-11, I really wanted to get into the news business because I was glued to WABC uh, 770 AM in New York city where Rush Limbaugh broadcast out of it was his flagship station. And I was more a fan of some other programs on the network, but nevertheless, I wanted to get in the, in the, in the door there somehow. And so I took an internship in sales, which I was particularly bad at. And I don't think it was a good fit for me. I think everybody's agreed with that and walked over to um, who was then the programming director at the time, Phil Boyce and asked if I could sit in with this, radio show that I enjoyed, which was at the time, the John Bachelor Paul Alexander show. And I ended up staying there for four years. But at that time, you know, the golden microphone was still in the, in the studios, big oil painting of rush still in the studios. Um, some real legends in the business at the time, um, still broadcasting over there. And it was, uh, you know, my first early foray into this career was a new, as a news talk radio producer. And I loved the medium. I loved what it was capable of as an entertainment medium, as the business of politics of entertainment is what attracted me to this business in the first place. Now, I think it's that that paradigm is probably responsible for a lot of our political ills at this point. But nevertheless, it was uh, something that I thought was extraordinarily powerful and very rewarding. And um, one of the reasons why I was attracted to this business and nobody practiced the craft better than Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I will say this, that when Rush Limbaugh started, the first time I listened to Rush Limbaugh, though I'd heard about him, uh, because I had edited a couple of articles about him at the Washington Times, but he was not on in Washington. I was on vacation in Utah on a hiking, on a walking vacation, uh, and uh, was doing a lot of walking with headphones on. And I discovered that you could hear Rush Limbaugh uh, at that time. I think it was at, on at nine in the morning where I was. Um, and uh, I'd never heard anything like it before. Uh, they have been a huge talk radio fan and New York talk radio in the 1980s was not left-wing. I mean, it was some version of Koch, sort of like a kind of common-sense, semi-neocon populist. Uh, it was interesting. It was politically interesting, actually. And uh, But um, R- uh, Rush brought this kind of um, uh, jazzy, funny, uh, there's a complete misunderstanding of this talent on loan from God stuff, self-deprecating the town on loan from God stuff was a was a was a self slap, not a uh, you know the greatest, the this, the I'm the greatest. It was all a kind of uh, refractory thing. But what was interesting about him and listening to him was that he was the first really successful popularizer 
of conservative ideas. And that's what he thought of himself as being. He talked about uh, excellence. He talked about, um, you know, uh, the responsibilities of uh, individual liberty and what it meant to be a citizen. He and John Fund wrote this book called The Way Things Ought to Be, which is a very which was at the time sort of like the best kind of like a book to give a high schooler if they wanted to understand what conservatism was, explained, sort of took it into bite-sized chunks and laid it out. And it was all based on general conservative ideas. And he was a popularizer of conservative ideas that were, that were being promulgated in the, in the academy and in, and in magazines like Commentary and National Review and all of that. And that was who he was. And that was what he did. And as he got more and more successful and more and more, um, you know, his reach became larger, um, I think what's interesting is that was what was wanted. Take this through the 2000s and then into 2010, 2011, and what he did, because he understood his audience, was that that was over with. That was, it was, that was not what was wanted anymore by his following and by this group of people who had come to rely on him. They wanted something else. They wanted the 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 20% of what he was that was uh, provocation and owning the libs and kind of, you know, ad hominem nastiness and all of that. They wanted 80 to 90% of that and 10% of the other. And like any great entertainer, he had a mind meld with his audience. And he was not going to allow anyone to come up on his, you know, come up on his track and lap him. He wasn't going to let Sean Hannity get his audience. He wasn't going to let Michael Savage get his audience. He wasn't, he was going to go where they wanted him to go. And so this notion that he destroyed the right with his evil schemes, he was a, he was the representative of a body of opinion on the right throughout his career, not its leader. He was its follower it's expostulator so he he was kind of i think his 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 in his later career he was he was actually a victim of the success that he'd created not just for himself but for all of conservative alternative media right before right so my my own experience with rush was i had written a, a policy paper kind of like a white paper for the independent women's forum about women's studies textbooks you know the small little report send it out there um he read from that report on the air and the a massive amount of attention that this tiny organization received as a result. And the discussion about that issue that was spread because of him was all for the good. It, it broadened the debate about things that were never even discussed in mainstream media. You saw this with things about like the wage gap, for example, he would pick from, you know, sort of small conservative groups that were concerned about particular issues that would perhaps, you know, be uh, George Will might write about it in a column or something. And he would read directly from, he'd request the report and he'd read it, extensive details from these reports, giving a microphone pre-social media, pre-Facebook, giving a megaphone really to organizations that were working really hard on issues that were of deep concern, particularly in the culture war to conservatives. And as we now have more platforms for more conservatives to do that, of course, he had he became he had to he had to change it up. And I I mean, I lament that he became so radicalized, quite honestly. But in fact, it's evidence of the success that he helped create. I think that's that's very true. The ultimate thing that needs to be said is that he was one of the most extraordinary cultural talents in American history. And uh, he spent uh, thirty, close to thirty-five years as the dominating figure in a medium that he revived personally. He never surrendered his leadership position in that medium. There's never been anything like it. You can think that he was a force for good or that he was a force for bad. However, you want to think about it, he sat in front of a microphone. Three hours a day, five days a week, 22,000 hours of broadcasting by himself alone. A shy, awkward guy, socially awkward. I knew him. He was actually kind of sweet, kind of bumbling. He had a couple of terrible, you know, reversals and uh, circumstances. His drug addiction, uh, going deaf, ending up with a cochlear implant, all of that. But he didn't Oprahize himself, right? He didn't turn that into he. It, it wasn't listening to Rush. wasn't about the drama of being Rush. It was about Rush's brain, or about the brain of the right. And as I say, you want to you want to think that bad things happen on the right. Uh, you know, over the last fifteen years, 
he was it was he exposed that because he was as i say its embodiment not its leader that's what needs to be understood <clears throat> and with that we will give you uh 23 hours of peace <laughs> till we come back to you again uh for Abe Noah and Christine I'm John Podhoritz keep the candle burning